Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. And this episode is the first one for the year 2022. Our podcast, the Puberty Prof Podcast, is continuing strongly into the new year. So to start off the new year, we're going to review the body parts that most girls have and most boys have. To help us out, I invited Dr. Casey Tobin to join us. She is a professor in a psychology department in the Midwest and Dr. Tobin, Casey, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more of who you are? Hi, yes, thank you for having me. So I have been teaching college level sexuality or sex education courses probably for the last 15 years, but I also have some experience going into elementary schools and doing some sex education for the kiddos there. And I like to just talk about sex and sexuality and how important it is for us to understand kind of who we are and and understand our bodies and understand why our bodies react the way they do. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. And you also have two children, correct? I do. I do. And they have taught me a lot when it comes to (laughs) sex education as well. But they've helped me uh, understand kind of the needs and help me understand what what teenagers go through, especially puberty. That was an interesting experience with my kids. Um, but yes, they, they are wise beyond their years when it comes to sex education. So I feel very proud about that. Well, at any point during our recording, please, if you want to share any stories for our listeners about how to feel positive about those bodily changes of puberty, you know, please interject at any point because to our audience out there, this is one of two parts. Part number one is going to focus more on the body parts that most girls have in the reproductive system. Part two is going to be what the parts are for most boys. So Dr. Tobin and I, we know each other in the professional field. So we're going to have this conversation and you might hear some terms at times that we might change some of the wording because sometimes we use terms more at the college setting and then we use terms more for the elementary school. So we hope you sit back and enjoy our conversation here as we review the parts of the body system. So Dr. Tobin, are you ready to start talking about the parts that most girls have in the reproductive system? I am. This is exciting for me because there's so many different parts and it can be quite confusing what parts we actually have. And I find it interesting that when I teach this at the college level, even to graduate students, some people don't know all their parts. Right. Yes. I see that quite often. So, and, but it's good to learn and it's good to understand what goes where and how it works and why it works the way it does. So if you're listening in and you're like, I never heard of that, that's okay. You're not the only one. There are adults in their 70s and 80s that don't know all these body parts. But what I do want to point out is that it is your body and you have the right to know your body and to also protect your body. So if you're listening in and you don't know all your body parts, it's okay. Hopefully you'll learn some things today. And if you hear the phrase of what we're saying, most girls, 
we're going to refer to that in today's segment for why we're using that term. Some people use the term or the phrase people with a vulva. For this podcast, I use the phrase most girls because I believe that's what a lot of our listeners understand as it's being said. Are you ready to get started, Casey, about talking about these body parts? Yes, let's go. Okay. And I believe you have 13 fun facts. I do. I do. Fun fact number one. So one of the things that I find that's probably the most interesting about the questioning of girls' body parts, especially when we're talking about genitalia, is where the vagina is. We often use vulva and vagina, those two terms, interchangeably. And yet they're not the same. They are not really the same when you look at where the vagina is located and where the vulva is located. So we're going to talk a little bit about the outside parts of their genitalia. Um, So the vulva is the outer bits, if you will, of the genitalia. So we're looking at the inner labia and the outer labia. And we're also talking just briefly about the clitoris and then the opening of the urethra, which is where you urinate out of, and then the opening of the vagina. Because the vagina is actually inside most girls. The vagina is really a muscular type of canal that leads from outside genitalia all the way into the uterus. And that's where the uterus is where um, is also known as the womb for carrying the baby. It also plays a huge part in menstrual cycles. It's just really interesting because they worked in tandem, if you will. And people often use those words, you know, oh, the vagina, you know, are you having issues with your vagina? But what we're really talking about sometimes is the vulva and that the vulva is the exterior portion, whereas the vagina is the canal that leads to more interior organs of most girls. And what's really wild about that, Casey, is when I started teaching health education, the visuals that we had to go over the reproductive parts or the reproductive systems They never focused on the vulva area. It was always about the internal for most girls. So our fun fact here, number one, is that there is this separation. The vulva is the external parts. And what's really even interesting is if you look at the Latin terms for vulva or where vulva and vagina came from, the Latin term of vulva is really meaning wrapper or covering. But if you look at the Latin root meaning of vagina, it's called sheath for the sword. So the Latin term for vulva is the outside covering and the vagina is really looking at the inside and really focusing in on that muscular canal that we have. And one little tidbit of information is, although we use those terms in, you know, interchangeably, the vagina itself can extend anywhere from three to five inches back and upward from the vaginal opening. And that plays a part in childbirth, that plays a part in, um, you know, when you actually have a baby that the uterus expands. And so that actually changes the length, if you will, of the vaginal canal. Well, what's fun fact number two? Oh, gosh, this is interesting. So I don't know if people understand that you can actually compare your vagina with tomatoes. They actually (laughs) have something in common. And what's, do you know, Lori? Oh, I'm going to let you explain. I've never explained this to to even college students before. So the listeners, I'm also learning here from Dr. Dobin. So this is so fun for me. Okay. So they have a lot in, well, they have something in common, I should say. They're both acidic. So 
tomatoes are quite acidic. So if you were to look up the pH levels of tomatoes, you're looking at anywhere from 4.0 to 4.7. And on a pH level, you know, range, seven is like neutral. So when you're looking at tomatoes, the acidic level is four to 4.7. If you look at the vagina pH balance, it has a 4.5. So they have the same acidic level, if you will, as tomatoes. But I think the bigger question is, why is the vagina so acidic? And it's really important that you don't play with the pH balance of vaginas. The vagina is actually home to a lot of microorganisms that only thrive in certain type of acidic environments. So if you change that environment, you could be introducing bacteria that's unhealthy and actually can move into the vaginal area. Even using douches, you probably have heard of douches or you've used, you've used fragrant soaps or those type of things. It can actually interfere with the vaginal's natural flora, if you will. That's what we call it. And that can upset, upset the vaginal pH balance and can lead to things such as yeast infections. So it's okay to use soap and fragrant soap, but you want to use that on the outer parts like the vulva area but not necessarily inside for the vaginal area because it changes that. In which for douching, they, I know sometimes you'll hear somebody say, do you have that not so fresh feeling? That's the commercial that I remember growing up. They sell products that you would put a, a liquid into the vaginal opening. And that's not, that's not needed. Because like you say, Casey, there's that acidity that's needed. And as a person who has had yeast infections, because I didn't understand when Mm -hmm. I was younger, if I went for a run and I was wearing cotton underwear, you need to change that right away. Because if it's damp and it's against the the opening, the, the vulva area, but that dampness also can interfere with the vaginal area. Yes. Yes. And that kind of leads into something I wanted to kind of share about the vaginas and discharge. I want to also share a little bit about the self-cleaning vaginas. So I'll, I'll move into that first and then let's back up to the vaginas and the discharge. So our vaginas are self-cleaning, which is awesome. So going back to that pH balance, our vaginas are naturally self-cleaning. So when you introduce products into the vagina, it throws that balance off and can lead to a lot of irritation and inflammation even. So you mentioned douching and what douching really is, is using some sort of vinegar or an antiseptic introduced into the vaginal canal. And that's really discouraged and doctors will discourage this. And even the packaging discourages not to use douching for long periods of time. It really should be under the doctor's care when you do use a douche of some sort, because it can be harmful and it increases the risk of the vaginal and pelvic infections because it alters that pH pH and uh, rids the vagina of that important healthy bacteria. So right now, one fun fact is where the vagina is, and it's separate from the vulva. Mm -hmm. Another fun fact is that the vagina can be compared to tomatoes regarding acidity. (laughs) And then you just said that our vaginas self-cleanse themselves. Yes. So what's the fourth fun fact here? Well, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but if you've ever seen one vulva, that means you've only seen one vulva. And what I mean by that is that most girls worry that their vulvas probably don't look normal. And unfortunately, media, you know, today's world and media, what's normal 
has been defined by others rather than defined by who we are individually. And historically has actually been pretty inaccurate. (laughs) So the labia majora, which are the outer lips and the labia minora, which are the inner lips, they all look different. They're all different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different variations. Um, There are some outer lips that are a little bit larger than the inner lips. Or when I say the labia majora, majora could be a little bit larger than the inner or the labia minora, but it can also flip. So the labia minora, the inner lips could actually be larger than the outer lips, the labia majora. So some can be very closed off. Some can be very tight. Others can be very loose. So when you're just talking about the vulva itself, the size is different. The shape is different. The colors are different and even the smells. So I was talking earlier about the um, vagina is self-cleaning. It could have different smells at different times in your menstrual cycle, but it can also have different smells due to different environments or different things that you may actually be eating. So, but the vulva typically needs to be kind of left alone, if you will. What's fascinating with what you just said, Casey, is when I talk about this with college students, because we use this book by Heather Karina that I love, it's called Sex S-E-X the all you need to know sexuality guide to get through your teens and twenties. And I love this guide for my future teachers because it's the language in here is so great for a young person to have an understanding. It's supportive, no matter how you identify. And she had the Karina has this one section where she flat out says it's in her, you know, in written in here, it reads genitals come in all shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the book and it's cartoon pictures or photos of genitalia, my students are like, whoa, you know, that's kind of weird to see. But then they're like, wow, there are a lot of variety out there mm-hmm. because I've heard this. This is my second point that I thought of when you were talking. I've heard that some young people, one particular young woman I know was told by a partner that mm-hmm. her vulva doesn't look right. And she had this self-image issue. And I'm like, are you kidding me? There's so many different forms or different shapes of vulvas, like what you just said, that if you have a partner that puts down your body part, they're not the partner for you at all. But I also think that it's important for everyone. It doesn't matter, you know, your gender, it doesn't really matter about your biological sex, but everyone needs to explore their own bodies and understand what their genitalia looks like. So you know what's normal for you and and not be judged like what you had said with this young lady you were just sharing with, because as we said many times already, that it's all different shapes and sizes and different colors. Your vulva actually may be a different color than the rest of your skin on your body. Sometimes it's darker. For most girls, it's darker. The normal labia kind of ranges from pink to red, but it can also be brown or even purplish. So because of the blood supply that you have in your vulva area. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay. So how about your fun fact number five? Oh, so vaginas and discharge. All women that have a vagina will more than likely have some form of discharge at some point in their life. So most girls, 
the quality and the quantity of fluid that's discharged can change. It's coming from your cervix primarily. Cervix actually discharges a fluid throughout your menstrual cycle at different times and different consistencies. So it's really based even on your hormonal levels within your body, or it can have an impact on the discharge that you have. So a lot of girls, when they have vaginal discharge, they worry because it looks different than it did two weeks ago, or it's, it may have a different odor than it did two weeks ago. So it can be opaque. It can be whitish and creamy, or it could increase in quantity. And that usually happens when you're moving towards ovulation. And so if it increases in quantity, it could be wet. It could even be clear. And if you touch it, it might even have somewhat of a stretchy type of texture. So that wetness and that level of transparency tends to get greater as you approach ovulation. However, I do want to warn those that you may want to seek out medical attention, though, if you're seeing atypical discharge or discharge that you've never had before, Um, because it could be an infection or it could even be an allergic reaction to something like laundry or perfume. So if there's a change in the texture, like the thickness, if it becomes chunky or foamy, or it has a foul odor or an off color like green, please seek out doctor's advice and and go see someone to check that out because you want to make sure that that's healthy because our vaginas help determine the health of our bodies even. So we need to take care of our vaginas and vulvas um, the same way we need to take care of our bodies. So, and of course, if there's burning or itching, in addition to some of the change in your discharge, that could also be an indicator of infection. So be sure to seek out some medical advice if something changes within your vagina. Just like if you have a toothache, go to the dentist. Yeah, exactly. it's like, take care of your body just because yeah. it's these body parts are located typically in our underwear. It doesn't right. mean that you don't want to get support for it. You have every right to. And you reminded me, Casey, of when I was in middle school. And I remember this for some reason in my music class. I don't know why. And it was the last class of the day, every other day. But when I was ovulating, I didn't really understand that when you ovulated, you had this fluid that came out, this discharge, because I would sit, be sitting in my chair and I would feel this liquid like forming or in, in like being on my underwear. And I thought it was me getting my period. So I was always paranoid that it was blood. And I don't know when it finally clicked like, oh, this is discharge because I'm ovulating. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things that I think all girls should really understand that it's girls need to change their panties. It's okay. And it's very normal for girls to change their panties a couple of times a day, especially if you have that discharge. I remember when I was younger and I would go for a sleepover to a friend's house and this one particular friend was unpacking or going through my clothes or whatever. And she'd say, God, you have a lot of underwear. And then I thought it was different. It was like, well, of course I have different underwear. If something happens and I have discharge, I want to change it. Um, And she just didn't understand why I had so many underwear. And I would love to call her today and say, hey, do you change your underwear now? (laughs) Because it is very normal, especially if you've been out exercising or if you have, you're ovulating and you have that discharge, you may want to change your underwear. And that's very normal. Yeah. And do you know of any advice for like what type of underwear is best? Yes. Cotton, definitely cotton. You want to stay away from polyester. You want something that can breathe. So even the cotton material doesn't need to be really dense. It needs to be open and airy. 
when you use other synthetic type of materials that can actually increase the moisture in your vaginal area and in towards your vulva. And um, that can increase the risk for infections. Thank you. Sure. Okay. How about another fun fact? Number six. Um, you know, going with the vagina here, the vagina, as we talked, is that muscular tube um, that connects the vulva area to the uterus. And it runs upward and backward at a 45 degree angle. So, you know, a lot of times when, when most girls are inserting, let's say a tampon, and it may feel like it's kind of hitting the wall or it's not comfortable going in, it may be because you're not quite entering the tampon at a 45 degree angle. So understanding your angle is going to be really important. So another tidbit of information is if, and I'm not sure if you can do this without seeing me, but if you take your mouth and you slightly open your mouth and then you tighten your lips to make kind of a large O shape. So I'm going to ask you to do that, Lori. Yep. And you do that. And then it's kind of firm, if you will. Your cheeks probably are a little firm. When you put your finger inside and you rub your cheeks, that is similar to how your vaginal wall may actually feel. Interesting. I think that's an interesting tidbit. And that if somebody wanted to do that, like to feel the inside of their mouth, as well as the inside of the vagina, Mm -hmm. wash your hands beforehand. Absolutely. And it's okay to do that. Yes, absolutely. With consent, if it's someone else. So, well, even for yourself, if you're like, this doesn't feel right, then, you know, give yourself some moments. You don't have to, you know, if you hear other people doing things, remember, we have to be in charge of our own lives. We have to make the best decisions for ourselves. How about fun fact number seven? All right. Let's talk a little bit about your vaginal muscles. So our vaginas are incredible parts of our bodies. You actually have muscle control within your vaginal area. And there's something that's called vaginal strength training. You know, we work our muscles when we lift weights and when we run or we take a walk, we're using those muscles, we're making sure that they don't atrophy, that they're being used and, and, and trained and, and worked out. We need to do the same thing with our vaginal area. So something called Kegel exercises. So some of you may have already heard about Kegel exercises or even the PC muscles, the pubal coccygeal muscles. Um, these Kegel exercises are something that you can do, and you may already be doing them without even realizing you're doing them, but doing these can help prevent urinary incontinence. So like urine leaking out or any other type of pelvic floor problems to do this in order to strengthen those pelvic floor muscles. Um, what you're actually going to do is to identify those muscles, you would stop urinating midstream. And when you do that, that muscle that you use to stop urinating midstream is using your pelvic pore muscles. And what's great about this is you can practice, you can do your Kegel exercises and nobody ever knows that you're actually doing them. So something that I was taught early on to strengthen Kegel muscles, especially since I've had two children, they said, make sure you do this prior to birth as well as afterwards is to use those pelvic floor muscles. So what I do, if you ever see me out in public or driving down the road, anytime I'm at a stoplight or anytime I'm at a stop sign, I actually work those pelvic floor muscles. I do the exercises. What I do is I hold them tight and I wait three or four seconds and then I release them. And then I do it again. And I try to do that five times. 
And you can actually strengthen them even more if you hold it for longer seconds. Some people can hold it for you know quite some time. But that's one of the ways that you can really strengthen those muscles. And, and that helps because your floor muscles may be weakened because of pregnancy, because of surgery, even aging, or even when you strain if you're constipated. And even being overweight or having that chronic cough that sometimes we have during the fall and the winter time, the chronic cough can actually cause urine leakage. And so strengthening those pelvic floor muscles will actually help prevent some of that urine leakage. Excellent. Should I admit that sometimes when I'm bored and I'm in a meeting and I don't have my phone out because it's disrespectful, just like in the classroom, I don't allow students to have their phones out. That if you're bored, you can just do all over. It's a reminder. I can do yes. some exercises and nobody would know. Right. Yeah. I know when I teach this to my college students, I, I talk about it and everything. And then I kind of look across the room and I ask them, how many of you are practicing your Kegels now? And they always <laughs> giggles and they're all kind of like, yeah, we're all doing it because they're trying to do it. And it's really important that we, we do that so we can strengthen those muscles um, for better vaginal health, if you will. Moving on to fun fact number eight, this is the Bartholin's gland. And I don't think we, we talk about this enough. I don't always refer to this when I talk to young people. So do you mind telling us a little bit about this gland? Yes. And I will say there's limited research and understanding of this particular gland. And there's another gland that I'm going to talk about as well. But the Bartholin gland is, there are actually two glands one on each side of the vaginal opening and within the borders of the labia minora. And this gland will actually secrete a mucus-like substance within the vaginal opening. And this can help with lubrication of the vaginal area, but it's secreted and it's a healthy secretion to help decrease any kind of friction, maybe for even inserting tampons or for sexual penetration or just moisture for the vulva. What was the other gland? Ah, the other one is called the skein's gland. And this is a little bit lesser of a gland, if you will, but they say that this is more homologous to the prostate gland in males. So these are two glands located on either side of the urethra. So it's actually still in the vulva area. And they are believed, there's still some controversy in the research about this, but they are believed to secrete a substance to lubricate the urethra opening. And this is also a, um, a gland that secretes the substance that's believed to also act as an antimicrobial. So it helps prevent some of the infection that me, people may experience, such as urinary tract infections. You know, I really appreciate your wealth of knowledge. I really do. And I love hearing the scientific terms. It's fun talking about this with another person who teaches it. It really is. So thank you again for being here, Casey. Absolutely. And some girls, I'm going to add to this, that some girls, if you take a mirror, you can actually see the Bartholin's glands, the opening to the Bartholin's glands. They're very, very tiny, but you might be able to see those. The skein's glands are actually a little bit more difficult to see. But you know, while you're understanding your body and, and looking at your genitalia, you might be able to actually see the Bartholin's glands. If you can't, that's not unusual, but you might be able to if you look. Where would you see it? The Bartholin's glands? Mm -hmm. So the Bartholin's glands are the on the outside of the vagina, 
hole entry, if you will, and within the borders of the labia minora. So it's right around the vaginal opening. Okay. Thank you. I know you said that earlier, but I wanted to bring back to where it might be in case someone's like, oh, I want to check to see if I can find that. Absolutely. Okay. Fun fact number nine, Dr. Tobin. So this is the clitoris. Um, And this is a organ that I don't think we talk enough about. And I also don't think there's enough research or understanding what the clitoris actually is. The, The research is increasing. So we're starting to understand a little bit more about it. But this is a bean-sized organ, as some people will say, or like a little button. And um, it's a sex organ, and it's located above the urethral opening or where girls urinate outside of the urethral opening. So it's located just above that. And a little tidbit of information. So this is kind of going into the uh, more advanced terms, but it develops from the same embryonic tissue as the penis does in utero. And it has lots and lots and lots of nerve endings. So what that means is it's very, very sensitive and it can vary in size. So it could be as small as a little bitty pea, or it could actually be as big as a thumb. And usually just the head or the tip of it will come outside of the body where you can actually see it. However, the clitoris is bigger than just that little bean or just that little tip of the outside of the body that you can see. It actually has these shafts, if you will, that go back inside um, a girl's body and stretches up about five inches, give or take, if you will. And then they reach down from the gland towards the vagina. So they play a heavy part in vaginal lubrication because if these are stimulated, they actually will produce additional vaginal lubrication, both the walls of the vagina, as well as kind of encouraging the Bartholin's gland to increase that lubrication. Wonderful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So you just reminded me, Dr. Tobin, Casey, that I used to do this activity in the middle school with fifth graders in which they would read a fictional description of a young person and they had to figure out how they might identify. Now, we don't typically do this much anymore because we know there's so many variables. Yet what I always thought was interesting, and this is even 15 years ago, was that young people thought that when they had these pleasing feelings in their underwear area, that that was always associated with somebody with a penis, with most boys. Yet that clitoral area that most girls have can also have these pleasing feelings. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this, the clitoral area, that's where you can also, like, if you're looking at a cutie patootie across the room, you might feel like a little tingling in this area. And then some moisture might build in the labia parts. Yes. And what that is, is you might have a a sense of excitement, if you will, and blood will rush towards the genitalia, both for boys and girls, but the clitoris could be engorged with blood. And what that's doing is causing that fun you know, sensation that you may be experiencing in your underpants. And that's a, that's a form of arousal. And the clitoris is very sensitive. Like I said, it has those, those, a very dense amount of nerve endings and that causes it to be very sensitive. And it, when stimulated that, that can be increased to sexual stimulation. Fun fact number 10. Well, this is about whether or not one should shave in the pubic area. So do you shave or do you not shave? And what's interesting is 30, 40 years ago, that was never even thought of to actually shave your pubic hair. 
But over time, especially the last 20 years, media has had some heavy influence into this. But removing that, that pubic hair is really a personal preference. It's not necessary to remove the hair in this area to keep your body clean. Some people will say by shaving it or getting rid of the hair, it makes you feel cleaner. Whereas others believe that, no, I need to have that hair. It serves a purpose. And it does serve a purpose. But there's no health benefits for removing the pubic hair. Some girls say that shaving pubic hair is high maintenance, that it may take too much time to do that. And it usually grows back in just a couple of days. And when you shave it, it can become itchy. But one of the things I think is important when we're talking about the health of the pubic area is that if you remove pubic hair, it actually can irritate and inflame those hair follicles that you leave behind. And what that does is it opens up those little bitty microscopic wounds, which can then become irritated, especially with a moist environment. And we've already talked about how vaginas are very moist and produce discharge. So if you have a warm, moist environment in the genitals area, it's, it's kind of like a Petri dish of sorts for bad bacteria to actually grow. So your pubic hair is really a protective, but you, and you don't need to remove it. If you choose to remove it, be mindful of, of some of the risks that it can actually cause, such as small little microscopic wounds um, in your pubic area. And I know some people choose to remove the hair that if they're wearing a bathing suit and there's hair sticking out, they might choose to shave that area or even have that area waxed. And again, that's a personal preference. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when you go on the inner side of the legs, that's one thing. But when you start removing the pubic hair that helps protect the entrance or helps protect even the clitoral area, I think that's that's when it could be risky because you're opening yourself up to possible irritation. I have in my book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, the question of why do we have pubic hair? And there's a lot of theories yeah. for that. And part of it is, and please, you shout out anything you want to. Part of it is a back in cave people day, they didn't have Fruit of the Loom underwear. So that actually helped the parts stay warmer. Mm -hmm. And then the pheromones and pheromones are these chemicals in our bodies that actually it helps deal with attraction and which you might not even be aware of the pheromones that acuity patootie has that's they're emitting and you're like, Ooh, I kind of like this person for some reason you're attracted to these, these scents, but you might not even be able to smell it, but your body, some parts in your brain can figure it out. What are some of the other theories behind pubic hair? Um, just as a protective, like you said, um, and the pubic hair, it's, it's the natural growth, if you will, of most people develop pubic hair down there as that protective. Um, but some people will remove it because they think it's better to have it shaved and it's cleaner. But I think people need to really understand the pros and the cons. And I would encourage girls, especially if you're shaving it because of your bathing suit, maybe just trim it or trim it back. It depends, but also allows you to have that trim look and it won't be on the outside of your bathing suit or it won't creep around the bathing suit, as we say. And if you're a person listening in and you have testicles and a penis, realize there's, I know that there's new products out there that are like, okay, you can manscape. I think that's what it's called yes. manscape. And then there's even deodorant for your testicles. Okay. I, I think that if you're, if you're smelly, we recommend that you go and shower if you like worked out, or if it's one of these hot, humid days that we can have, you know, in the summer or something like that. 
But the removal of hair, again, is a personal choice. And be careful of these body parts, because if you are shaving or using a product and you nick an area, like you you hit it at a certain angle, you can actually bleed Mm -hmm. and it could hurt. And then it's open for infection. Yes. And they have deodorant as well for lady parts, if you will. Um, I've seen more and more of these advertisements on social media sites um, where you basically rub like a deodorant onto your vulva. I don't know enough about it to speak from a scientific point of view. However, introducing anything into the vulva area and the vaginal area, I think I would be very leery because as we know, we talked about the pH balance and we also talked about how they're self-cleaning. So if you introduce something like it smells like roses or it smells like flowers of some sort, you are then introducing possible bacteria and not healthy bacteria into the vaginal area. So you have to be mindful. Just be careful out there. Read the products that you're going to put on or in your your body. Always test it on your forearm because if you get a rash, it's easier to deal with the rash there than even in your underarm area or your your, uh, genitalia area. But realize that some of these products out there, they're just to make money. And your vagina is not supposed to smell like a rose. No. It's not a rose. And remember, all vaginas smell different. Yes. They're not going to all smell the same. They're going to be different. They're going to look different. Well, moving on to fun fact number 11 for most girls, this deals with the cervix. What do you have to tell us about the cervix, Casey? Well, we had lots to say about the vagina, but the cervix is very important to understand its purpose. It's important to really understand, you know, what it might feel like. The cervix is the opening to the uterus. So in case you're not kind of real sure where everything is, the uterus is basically the womb if you were to carry a child. And the cervix is the opening to that uterus. So if you go through the vaginal canal, you will then go to the cervix and then that opens to the uterus. It's the lower end of the uterus. So the opening in the middle of the cervix is called the os. And this is when um, babies come out and they come through the vagina, they actually have to go through the cervix and it has to expand or dilate. You probably have heard. And that permits the passage of the baby from the uterus to the vagina during childbirth. Um, and it, it can expand as wide as a fist. So 10, even 12 centimeters. But I think what's really kind of interesting about your cervix. So most girls aren't able to really feel their cervix. Um, And the texture and the position of the cervix actually can change to the menstrual cycle. It plays a part in that vaginal discharge that I talked about earlier. So the cervix, when you're ovulating, is very soft and open and wet, like I said, with the discharge. And it's actually kind of pulled up or it's a little bit higher in your vaginal area. And when you touch it, when you're ovulating, it feels more like the consistency of your lips. Okay. So if the cervix position, though, after ovulation, it actually becomes lower, becomes firmer and even drier. And this is where a comparison to your nose actually comes into play. So if you're after ovulation, your cervix is kind of not dropped, but it's lower. And at this stage in your menstrual cycle, if you touch your nose, the tip of your nose, your cervix actually will feel like the tip of your nose because of the cervix, or excuse me, because of the cervical opening, it actually starts closing and it feels more like the tip of your nose. I just think that's so intriguing. Um, (laughs) Most of us don't know what a cervix feels like, you know, Um, our doctors do, 
but we don't. So if you were curious as to how your cervix feels when you're after ovulation, it's like the tip of your nose. Yeah. And if you're curious about the positioning of things, like Casey, Dr. Tobin is saying, check out some some visuals that exist. Kidshealth.org have some visuals and they call it the male and female reproductive system. So you can see visually where these parts are. And if you're going to touch again, the, the cervix, remember to wash your hands beforehand. Absolutely. Always wash your hands. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like if, uh, if anybody's going to be intimate with another, just wash, wash your hands beforehand. Okay. Now I believe you started referring to the fun fact number 12. And the last fun fact about the size of the uterus. So what is that about the size of the uterus? Well, we talked about the uterus being the womb that holds the baby, but it also plays a heavy part into the menstrual cycle. Um, The uterus is hollow. So it's, it has space in it and it's very muscular and it's pear-shaped, but it's pear-shaped kind of like if you were to look at a pear and you flip it upside down. And that's where if a, a girl is pregnant where a fertilized egg will actually implant and then develop. So therefore it's a womb. The average size uterus actually measures only three inches by two and a half inches. It could be bigger. Um, and I'll say something about that here in just a second. So if you close your fist and you're an adult, it probably is smaller than your fist. And it has the shape, like I said, and the dimensions of an upside down pear the size of a, of a girl's uterus that hasn't been pregnant can actually vary. And a woman or a girl who's never been pregnant, the average length is about seven centimeters, the length of it, but it will actually increase to approximately just nine centimeters in a woman who is not pregnant, but has been pregnant before. So your uterus doesn't necessarily go all the way back to its original shape and size after you've been pregnant but it's very tiny. Um, I've got a friend of mine who comes into my class and sometimes talks about birth control and different things. And she brought in this really small looking red pear shaped piece of wood. And she had a friend of hers actually make it because it was such a visual of how tiny a uterus is. You think, oh my gosh, you've got an eight pound baby growing inside you. How big is that uterus? It's very, starts out very, very small. And then it expands remarkably when you have a baby in utero. Which is why for your body, respect your body. Our bodies are so incredible. I mean, if you, and you've had two children, your uterus expanded to fit those babies. Yes. And our last fun fact for part one here deals with something that was stated earlier in this episode but we're going to return about this whole thing about people with vulvas or vaginas. So what is that last fun fact? Well, I think we all need to understand that we've been talking about most girls here, but not all girls have vaginas and vulvas and not all people with vaginas or vulvas are necessarily girls. So what we're really talking about is the physical development of individuals. So what we're really talking about is gender. Some people may be born biologically a girl based on their chromosomes, but they may not necessarily have fully developed into the girl body parts or may simply not identify as a girl. 
And there's some chromosomal disorders that probably beyond the scope of this podcast, but they can lead for uh, biologically chromosomally girls haven't fully developed even a vagina. So they may have the outside of the vulva, but not necessarily the vaginal canal. And some people may be born biologically as a boy, but they identify as a girl. So they may still have genitalia that resembles a boy. So they may not have a vagina, but they identify as a girl. So it can be a little bit confusing, but we need to really respect that not all girls have vaginas, not all girls have vulvas, and not all people with vaginas or vulvas will identify as a girl. This concludes the 13 fun facts for most girls about their body parts. And I thank you so much, Dr. Tobin, for being here today for part one. And I look forward to you being back for part two. Any last words of advice or fun facts to share before we end today's episode? Well, first off, thank you for having me. But I think what's really important that we all understand is we have our body. Our body is our body. It's important that we honor our body, we nurture our body, and we understand our body. And by doing that, we can maintain a healthy sexuality. So get to know your body, understand how your body works, and appreciate what we have. We're all different, and yet sometimes we have some of the same parts. So it's important that we understand our own body and our own selves. Great. And thank you again for our listeners. I so appreciate you listening in. I hope that you've learned something, at least a fun fact about body parts that most girls have. And I hope that you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow The Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by The Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, common questions children ask about puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.